Well, good morning. It's an honor to be with you. Great stuff from Sweden, huh? Yeah, you know, I said the first service, you know it's going to be a good morning when you got a nuclear brain scientist and a Roscoe on stage at the same time, right? So, good stuff. Good stuff. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 31 as we look at 31.6 through the end of 33. As we talk about getting out of the spiritual ditch. Uh, when I was at, uh, growing up in eastern North Carolina, it snowed. I was 16. It snowed about two and a half feet. We had three and a half foot drifts. And in eastern North Carolina, that's a catastrophe. There were literally thousands of people stranded on I-95, the highway that ran right by our hometown. If you've driven that. And uh, I got a bright idea. My dad had put chains on my car, and I thought I would drive out to my friend's house to meet some fellas in the country for some, uh, probably some poor activities, let me say. And so as I drove out there, I'm driving down the road, and I'm driving about 10 miles an hour, three or four foot drifts of snow, and all of a sudden appeared a mailbox in the middle of the road. And in my head, I thought, why in the world is a mailbox standing in the middle of the road? Boom! And all of a sudden, my whole car slid off in the ditch. It wasn't that the mailbox was in the middle of the road. It was that I was in the ditch. And so we've all been there, physically or spiritually. And this morning's passage tells us how to get out and stay out. And it does so with three questions that we're going to attempt, and I think Isaiah answers this morning. They're in your notes. When God feels unreal and distant, how do we find our way back? What does God say to us who have failed Him and are only starting to get it? What do we need to understand about God's heart for us in the midst of our self-inflicted crisis? Key word is self-inflicted. Circle that. I believe our text answers that. Jonathan Edwards gives us some help as we get into this text. He says this, he's talking about how humans make contact with reality. And Jonathan Edwards, you need to know, used to be the uh, president of Princeton University, one of the smartest men in the last hundred years of America, many say. And he says, humans make contact with reality when they know things at two levels. He says, we grasp things with conceptual knowledge in our heads, but we also enter into things with the sense of the heart. It is the difference between reading a recipe for an apple pie and actually putting a piece of apple pie in your mouth. And it is this sense in our hearts, he says, that gives us, my words now, spiritual traction to get out and stay out of the spiritual ditch. I can't imagine Jonathan Edwards using spiritual ditch, so that's my words. So, the people of Isaiah were much like us. They had a theoretical knowledge of God in their heads, and therefore they stayed in the ditch by their disobedience. And we've seen plenty of that in the book of Isaiah, right? By their apathy and spiritual complacency and by their circumstances. In particular, in this text, their immediate circumstances are the Assyrians are coming in to destroy them. But the Lord instructs them and us 
with his truths to get us out of this spiritual ditch and help us stay out. And the first thing he does is he gives us, says in your notes, the strange grace of confrontation. And I say strange because confrontation doesn't feel like grace. But he does so in the form of calling us to repentance. And so since he does call us that, let me remind us or equip us to understand what repentance is so we'll know what to do and what it looks like. Repentance is to turn and about face from the direction you're heading to see and to feel and to weep over your actual sins against God and his words. It is an honest, broken-hearted awareness where your sins are grievous to you. To be rattled that our best duties and performances fall so short of this picture of the Holy One of Israel that Monty spoke of from Isaiah 6. And it is seeing the sin of, of treating God as unreal at a functional level that's day-to-day, -day, not theoretical level, but at a very functional level, day-to-day -day in our hearts and lives. And when we see that, it is when we see that, that we can turn and return to the all-sufficient, all-satisfying Christ. And that's when true transformation starts to take place. How often do we do this? Martin Luther put it this way. He says, repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. The entire life of the believer is to be one of repentance. So it's a way of life. In light of that, Isaiah calls us to repent from trusting in worldly security. Read with me, if you would, Isaiah 31.1. We're going back to Monty's text last week. He says, <clears throat> Woe to those who go down to fight to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel. And so Isaiah gives us a woe here, or as Phil said a few weeks ago, a heavy message to Israel because they're going down to rely on Egypt in order to seek security and protection from the Assyrians. Now, if you know a little bit about the Bible, even just some stories from the Old Testament, you know how much irony is here. <laughs> in the sense that in redemptive history, God called Israel up out of Egypt to free them, and now Israel is going back down to Egypt to be put enslaved by the people who once enslaved them again. God had exhorted over and over, through Moses, through his covenant, with the people of God, through reminding them through the prophets to put their functional day-to-day -day trust and reliance upon God. But instead, their response to him is to go back down to Egypt and rely on Egypt. Egypt. They have become a practical secularist. The chariots and the horses looks so much better than words on a page, than words from the mouth of Moses and the prophets. They're much more attractive. But the scriptures are full. 7,000 promises. 7,000 in God's word that call us to put our functional hope 
trust and reliance in God and God alone. But what do we do? We run, this is us, we run to political systems, we run to money, career, ourselves, connections, manipulative, control, comfort, power, sex. We even run to our own thoughts and emotions, even though they are so different and counter to what God's Word says. And we'll trust our own emotional narrative and feelings versus saying, I'm feeling this, but what does God say? And we'll trust it very functionally. I think what we need is we need to understand that the Assyria threatening us is not our real crisis, whatever that may be. Our real crisis for you and I both, because I've been in spiritual ditches, is my unbelief in God at a functional level, not a theoretical level. I went to seminary. I've read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. I can give you a whole list. Theoretically, I can explain God and understand Him at least at some cognitive level. It is my functional day-to-day that I struggle. We get in the ditch spiritually when our hearts are not filled with a deep, rich sense of God and who we are as His blood-bought children in Christ. And so what happens in verse 5 is he gives us a picture of what he does to those people even, even when they go down to Egypt to trust in horses and chairs. Look at verse 5, the very last part. He says, he will spare and rescue it. He will spare and rescue them. He will preserve a remnant of his people in spite of his people going down to Egypt. This little piece gives us this picture of God saving us from himself to himself and for himself and yet we live in a culture where a guy by the name of William Young who is the author of the shack who sold sold 20 million copies of that book he calls God in his new book lies we believe about God That's his new book. And you need to understand when he wrote The Shack, even though it's an emotional story and it would grab you by the heart and it it is fictional, he says, he has an agenda in his second book, Lies We Believe About God, gives us that because in that book he calls God a cosmic abuser. He says there's better no God at all than one who would brutally murder his own son. He calls it a lie that the cross was God's idea. But what he fails, he fails to see that without the satisfaction of God's holy justice, the only justice we would receive would be the justice of the fury of God's wrath. One writer put it this way, it says, Our Lord has revealed in the cross the God who solves the problem of his justice justice by the depths of his love. That's verse 5. He will rescue them even though they're unfaithful. And then read with me verse 6 and 7. Here's the call or confrontation to repentance, the invitation. He says, Now turn to him whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel, for in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for 
you. Turn to him, he says. Here's the invitation. From whom you have defected. Turn with a godly sorrow, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, that leads to repentance. So God is confronting us with this strange grace to feel and see the depth in which you have revolted and defected from him. The word defect is the same as you be used as a soldier leaving the army that he's been in and going to fight for someone else. A gracious invitation of God to those who have done the unspeakable and the unthinkable. He is calling them to return back to the lover of their soul and then throw away all the things that I mentioned above that you've been trying to find your identity in and your satisfaction in. And then in verse 9, he uses this phrase, his rock shall pass away in terror. And his officers desert the standard in panic. Declares the Lord whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So the rock there is the king of Assyria. His officers are his leaders. He says God is going to destroy them by the fire in Zion. This is speaking in chapter 32 of the future return of Christ. At the end of the age, at the end of times, there will be a fire in Zion. And God's fire will do two things. It will have a double effect, if you would. It's going to destroy the enemies of God, i.e. the Assyrians, and it's going to purify the people of God. So repentance can feel like a consuming fire but it leads to life and it purifies the people of God. It actually separates believers from unbelievers. There's no purifying fire for the unbeliever, only a destroying fire. And for the believer, there's a purifying fire. Repenting is painful at first, but it brings life at the end. Sin is pleasurable at first, but it brings death at the end. So Isaiah says, repent from trusting in worldly security. And then he says, repent from being a fool. In the first service, I said scandal. That's a southern way of saying scoundrel, okay? It's got an O-U in it there. Let me read if you would. Thank you, Monty, for that correction. Did I still say it wrong? Okay. So we're going back to the original Hebrew. It's scandal, okay? 32, 5 through 7. Read with me, okay? It says, The fool will no more be called noble, for the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. And so here's what we know intuitively. And that is a very ungodly culture honors very ungodly people as if they are godly and noble and upstanding citizens and examples to us. And what Isaiah is saying here is that God's people, the Israelites, have drifted so far that they are now doing just that. They've they've not only exchanged the truth for a lie, but now they have celebrated and give approval to those who do. 
and God calls them fools and scoundrels. Scandals, scoundrels. Monty um, spoke last week extensively about uh, the scoffer. This is in the same vein as that. So here's the fool. Here's what it is. He despises God, Isaiah tells us, because of two things. He despises God by heart bent to practice wickedness and to speak error about the Lord and His truth. Think William Young, a fool, because he speaks error about the Lord. And he despises people by his carelessness toward the poor. The fool is in a position of power. He's called a noble in society, and he uses this power to practice opposite of what he seems to be. And I can think of no time in history where there are more fools that have been called noble. Politicians, entertainers, athletes, those in the church who are living double lives, and those who embrace people who do. That's the fool. He's calling them out of that. And then for the scoundrel is a person who has gone rogue. People think he is generous and kind, but he devises wicked schemes. Schemes to get his own way, no matter what the cost. He spends his whole life, in a sense, to get ahead. He will steal and lie, all behind the cover of being an upstanding citizen. And many times it's about money and power. So the context that he calls, no fools, no scandals, stop that, is the context of the future. Verses 32, 1 through 8, as Isaiah does, he goes from the present to the future, back and forth, as many prophets do. And all that means for us is that any time Isaiah or any other prophet speaks of the future, what he's saying is, folks, this is going to be your future, so change now. <laughs> In our verbiage, we would say, Jesus is coming back, and if you know Christ, this is going to be your eternity, so live like it. So, he got to repent from worldly security, repent from being a fool and scoundrel, and then repent from spiritual complacency. All right? Read with me, chapter 32, 9 through 11. Isaiah says, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourself bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Now, women... Isaiah is confronting you specifically. Uh, many say he is doing that because as he talked about the fools and scoundrels, he was speaking to the men. Uh, in light of that, I need to say that in our March Madness bracket for our staff team, it is the women who are leading, Jenny, Ron, and Carrie. So I won't be too hard. But Isaiah says this morning, this confrontation with women shows just how full the corrupted culture had gone when women also have gone bad. Verse 9, if you read there, women, uh, Isaiah is speaking to the women. He is saying, be attentive to God's word for the good of your own soul. In some ways, Isaiah is pleading with the women not to be spiritually lazy. We know, if you're, look, if you're a man, don't tune out here. We know it's can be true for both of us. Uh, 
He's saying, don't give yourself women over to external things of the world. And there's a sense of urgency that Isaiah is speaking to here because in verse 10, he lets them know some bad things are about to happen. Things are going to change. They're going to shake you out of your complacency. So get out of it now. In verse 13, he reminds them. He says, your houses and your city, and I'm paraphrasing, that you prance around in will not satisfy because they will be gone. They won't matter. There'll be wild animals living in them. He has wanted them to mourn and lament their complacency spiritually. There's an invitation to repentance. Verse 11. Verse 11. He says to them, Tremble, you women who are at ease, Shudder or be troubled, you complacent ones. It is good for the complacent to tremble and to be troubled. Complacency is a killer of our souls. I know one of my greatest frustrations as a church leader with myself and with others is complacency spiritually. Drives me nuts when I get in those seasons and it's my fault Every time, every time, there's a long tail that it knows that has led me here. A long step of choices that has brought me to this place to be spiritually complacent in light of what I know to be true in the gospel. When I speak to people who are complacent spiritually, I think in my own mind and heart, I can speak to them and shock them out of it. And I give them my best shot, right? And they will nod. And, and I'm just thinking back the conversations. Oh, that's so true. But it's like water off a duck's back. It's in one ear and out the other. <clears throat> the complacent person, I think, is worse than a great sinner. The complacent person does not know they need help. They're continually living on the fringes. They're onlookers. They live in comfort. And here's what happens. <clears throat> For years and years and years in their complacency, they plant seeds of sin, small at first, like planting a garden. And they plant them and they plant them and they plant them. And they show up at church for an hour every Sunday. And then for six days, they live as they please. They're complacent. Their hearts never touch. They know theoretically about God, but functionally, they are their own God. Functionally, they have other gods. And in my conversations with people, I get those midnight phone calls where life, they're shocked that life has blown up and all that they've known and their words to me are, we go to church every Sunday. But then as I start asking investigative questions, what I find out, there's this long series of spiritual complacency that has gone from a seed to a monster and it has destroyed them. There's choices back here like, you were going to church and that, that's the seeds you were planting? You can talk about God theoretically, but functionally that's where you've been living for 12 years and now you want to know why you're here? 
spiritually, spiritually complacent folks, they don't see their demise coming. They are playing spiritual games. So Isaiah says, repent from that. And then lastly, he says, repent even in the midst of total failure. Total failure. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's words here. When he described his own conversion to Christ, he called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. And I want to just be human with us a minute this morning. To surrender to God is one of the hardest things human can do. To God that you are God. And then to repent and return to God after a total failure facepalm is just as hard. Chapter 33's context is important because God's people were turning back to Him. That's the context of chapter 33 in Isaiah. They weren't turning back to Him as the great lover of their soul, but as their last resort. Repentance was not a way of life with them in Isaiah 33, but it was a last-ditch effort to save themselves from immediate disaster and death from the Assyrians. And here's why. It had come to a head. It had climaxed. If you go to 2 Kings 18, write that text down and go read it later. King Hezekiah tried to buy the Assyrians off. So what did he do? This evil king stripped the doors and gold, uh, gold off the doors and uh, gold off the temple, stripped it out of the temple and took it out and gave it to the king of Assyria and made a deal with the devil, meaning we're going to give you gold so that you won't kill us and destroy us. And as the people of God stood and watched them bring the gold out of the temple and give to the Syrian king and his leaders, they felt this high relief. Well, maybe it worked. Maybe we won't die now. And then they immediately saw that the Syrians took the gold, but not only took the gold, but they also attacked them. And they see death and destruction coming. They had been had. Now, they only had one place to go. Their final backup plan was God himself. In some ways, it's a picture of what we use this phrase, they had hit rock bottom. They were, they were in recovery. <laughs> Addiction recovery. Addicted to trusting themselves functionally instead of trusting functionally the God and Holy One of Israel. And they had nowhere else to go. And verse 32 gives us a picture of their cry. Listen to what they say. 33.2 O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for You. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. That's what repentance looks like. It's a cry out. There's no demand there except be gracious to us and we don't deserve it. And here's what happens. When you and I genuinely repent, when you and I genuinely trust God functionally, we experience God. When we trust God and experience God, we find out He's really there. And here's what we find out. Now, 
Now, God says, I can really help you because you're at a place that you can hear and see and respond. And then what happens? We die to our self-sufficiency and are now alive to the all-sufficient Christ. Sin is exposed and seen and therefore can be healed. Christ becomes beautiful and precious to us because we know the depth of our sin. As a Christian, we never outgrow the truth that our failure is God's opportunity to really genuinely transform us from the inside out. And here's why. In spite of all that and more, here's God's response to them and to us when we repent. Chapter 33, verse 24. And no inhabitant shall say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their sin. There's no sweeter words in all the world than those words. And so after God's strange grace of confrontation, He now gives them this extravagant grace of provision. A provision. He gives them what they need to do to do what He's asked them to do. He's always done that, always will do that. And so the first thing he says is our king reigns over us. Your king reigns over you. Look at verse 32, 1 through 4. Again, Isaiah is speaking of the future here. At the end of the world, end of times, and he says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. That's King Jesus. And princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammers will hasten to speak, speak distinctly. As, I, as, as Isaiah moves from the present to the future, which he does throughout this book, he continually reminds us once again, when we speak of future things, it is a reminder to live differently now, because that's how the future is going to be. And in verse 1, he uses this phrase, a king will reign in righteousness and the princes will rule with justice. So we know that the rule of the king was inaugurated when baby Jesus lay in that manger. And this king in the manger was not only the future king of Israel, but he is our present hope and king now for those who know him. And to live this side of the cross versus on the Old Testament side of the cross is a precious blessing that you and I will never unpack or be able to unfold. Matter of fact, one writer said this week as I studied that when we get to heaven, the Old Testament saints will grab us by the face and give us a good shake and say, do you know? how blessed you were to live on that side of the cross. We were looking to it, and now you're on the other side of it looking back. Oh. When Christ returns, as Isaiah speaks, this perfect world that he will rule over will be full of righteousness and justice. And for us in the hearing now, Christ is to rule as king over his people in the hearts of his people. And in doing so, 
Even now, not perfectly, but even now there are four pictures of transformation that Isaiah gives us from this text to those who know him and to those who he's the king of their lives. And these four are in verses 3 and 4. The first is perception changes. We see differently than we saw before. Our eyes have been opened. I can think back before I came to Christ the things I, how I saw life and things, and that's what's been changing all along. Secondly, reception changes. I hear differently. Like I, I actually hear things differently than I did before. The third change is an understanding change, which would have been include our mind and our hearts. And the fourth is a change of our tongues. How we speak, what we speak about, if we're bold for the gospel and we tell the truth. So those are the four categories. When a person is visited by the Lord Jesus Christ in conversion, it is those four things that begin to change for a lifetime. The natural bent of our blindness, deafness, dumbness, hardness, and lying tongue is forever reversed in those who know Christ, and he rules over them as king. Tony Evans put it this way. He said, to be a disciple of Jesus means to progressively bring your life under his rule and authority. Lastly, God gives us the provision of his spirit. Chapter 32, 15 through 20, which you can read on your own. But I want you to notice uh, verse 14. Verse 14. After verse 14 of chapter 32, there is a semicolon. And what that means is that after Isaiah 9 through 14 spoke about the coming judgment on those who are complacent spiritually, he then in verse 15 tells us the only way to get out of spiritual complacency, which is a pouring out of the Spirit of God that comes to dwell into the life of the believer. Acts 2 was our inauguration of the Spirit of God living in those who know Christ. We know that it brings renewal, reverses our natural bent on all that we've seen, on what we love and what we hate. Our job is to yield to its work. Here's how John Piper, as I close up, sums up the Spirit's work in us as we yield to it. He says, God's majesty is magnified not in our hollow efforts to keep his commandments. Every religion does that. He says, don't do this. He says, we say, don't do this, do more of this, don't do this, da, 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 da. That does not make God look great, Piper says. It makes you and I look moral. Rather, the greatness of God's majesty is exalted when you are satisfied in Him more than anything, more than functionally speaking, more than any of those things that we talked about this morning, any horses or chariots. The ultimate essence of evil is our failure to be satisfied in God. Put it another way, the ultimate essence of evil <laughs> The ultimate essence of evil is our failure to treat God functionally as God. To just have theoretical knowledge of Him. 
He says, Satan laughs when we fight the battle on the level of deeds all the time. The battle, Piper says, is in here, in the heart. What do you love? What do you cherish? And what ultimately satisfies you? The only way to, to fight that fight is continual repentance. Continual repentance. Swimming upstream like a fish that's life is on the line. That's how we fight it. So let me ask yourself the question this morning, or ask yourself the question, so what? So what? And maybe it's this. Maybe it's, 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 uh, it's beginning a lifestyle of repentance. Maybe it's specifically repenting over one of those four things. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's saying, Lord, I need to fight the battle that matters, the battle of the heart. So take a minute to ask that question this morning.